Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. As those of you who've listened to my episodes with Erin Hunter or Pauline Holmes will know, I've been working with Erin as producer to take her one-woman show, Surfing the Holy Land, to Edinburgh French. And because so many people have enjoyed Erin and Pauline's episodes, I've decided to do a special series of the second chapter episodes around women of the French. Over the next few weeks, starting with this episode, I'll be chatting with women who are bringing their shows to Edinburgh Fringe, the world's largest arts festival, after the age of 35. In typical The Second Chapter fashion, I'm excited to know about the changes their lives and careers have seen post-35 and how they're planning to make their mark amongst the 3,500-plus shows that will converge on Edinburgh this August. Back to regular programming at the end of the month. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy the special Women of the Fringe episodes. For this episode, I'm speaking with Cynthia Shaw. Cynthia grew up in a small town in Colorado playing classical piano. After moving to New York as a student, she has continued throughout her life to add strings to her bow, going from musician to singer, actor, writer, and performer. This month, she presents her solo show, Velvet Determination, at Greenside Nicholson as part of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. I thought, oh my God, there is a place in the world for classical music solo shows. And that kind of changed everything for me about how I thought. And I thought, well, I'm not Hershey Felder and I'm not Leonard Bernstein, but I'm Cynthia Shaw and I have a story to tell. Hi, Cynthia. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm just fine. Thanks. For, thanks so much for having me, Kristen. This is fantastic. As regular listeners would know, I usually end the show with a quote, but I have a little quote that I would like to start the show with, if that's okay with you. You're nodding yes, so I'm going to take it as it's okay. Look in the mirror. Look very hard. Look for the person your mind may guard. Is it the person you truly want to be, or is it the person only lovely to see? Now, that is by none other than Cynthia Shaw in the second grade. (laughs) I can't believe you found that. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Yes. So I've only written one poem in my life, and it is that poem that I wrote in second grade. I have that poem, and it's in my scrapbook, but I always carried the poem around in my head. Always. And so finally I decided that I should write it out because it was in my head for a long time. And then I realized that it must be in my head and it also must be something that I wrote because it spoke to me very clearly about myself. Mm -hmm. And look in the mirror, look very hard, look for the person your mind may guard. So all of a sudden that made me think about what in the mirror is not necessarily how you feel on the inside. And, and alre- already that means that in second grade, when I was eight years old, I already felt like I was hiding myself or hiding things about myself from the outside world, which I think, not saying that I'm like a particularly profound person, but that feels very profound to me for a little eight-year-old to even be aware of and be able to express when the rest of it is, is it the person you truly want to be or is it the person only lovely to see? So I already understood that idea. We talk about masks, like people have a mask that they wear on the outside, but then 
how they feel on the inside. So that poem feels very, very personal to me, but also very profound. So anyway, thank you for reading that. I wanted to read it because I did think it was very profound. And I did think we talk so much nowadays, or in general, but especially nowadays, I think we talk about as women, the image we have to project, and especially performers. And for an eight-year-old to be writing about, who's me on the outside? Who's me on the inside? What do I see in the mirror? Is it who I want to be? I just was really into that. So I wanted to share it with everyone. (laughs) So that eight-year-old is from Pueblo, Colorado. From birth, I think you were from Pueblo, Colorado. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and growing up. So I grew up in a middle-class family, I would say, and we lived in a wonderful 1920s house that had belonged to my grandparents. And when my grandparents bought the house, it had been an estate. And the woman who owned the estate had traveled very extensively in, in the Far East. And so they ended up buying and there was all this furniture in the house so that when my parents bought the house from my grandparents and we moved in, there were still these vestiges of things from the estate, one of which I still own, which is a beautiful oriental rug that I have here in Brooklyn in my living room. These kind of traditions continue. My dad worked for a TV station. He first worked in radio and then in TV. And he was also a trombone player. And actually, I have these things that when you're a kid, these things you think about. My dad, he first worked for a radio station that was a Spanish language radio station called KAPI. And when I was little, I thought when they played records, I thought that the bands actually came into the radio station (laughs) studio and played. And I had this whole scenario in my head of like, band after band, popping in, playing their three-minute song, leaving another band. <laughs> so I funny, mean, like these images. I guess right? that does happen sometimes, but I, the idea that for three minutes a band pops in and then they somehow get out magically and the whole new band starts all over is pretty funny. <laughs> exactly. Like these things that little kids think up. And then I was so surprised when we would go to the station, I'd be like, Where's the band? Where are the musicians? Where's the guitar players? How do they fit in this tiny room? (laughs) No, exactly. And then my dad had to explain, no, they're on records. I was like, oh, anyway, then he he would bring home to us when he moved to another radio station, which was a top 40s radio station, which was really exciting. He would bring home records to us that the radio station wouldn't play or they didn't have room. For instance, this is one of my favorites is Peggy Lipton's Greatest Hits. You, you may not know who Peggy Lipton was, but Peggy Lipton was part of a TV show called The Mod Squad. Oh, and I do know she, of The Mod Squad. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And then he also one time got to, because he was a manager of the radio station at this the Top 40, he got them to play the new hit, They're Coming to Take Us Away, Ha Ha, Ho Ho, He to the Funny Farm, which was a big hit. And so they played that at dinner time on the radio so that we could all listen to it. So my dad was quite a, he was quite a character. He played the trombone and he loved playing trombone in jazz and big band. But the thing is, and this is the basis of my solo show, sort of one of the running themes of my solo show, is that my dad, and I played classical piano, my dad and I never played together. Oh, never. wow. Isn't that weird? And this thought, Now, I am not a young person. This thought only occurred to me like a few years ago. That in our family, it felt so natural and so whatever that there was the classical music side and there was the jazz and big band side that my dad was a part of. 
and that those two never met. My dad never taught me how to play jazz piano. He never introduced me to that world. It was like his, as I say in my show, it was like his secret club that I wasn't allowed to join. And people have asked me, could you not join that secret club because you were a girl and your dad was a man? Was it like an anti-girl thing? And I don't think so because my sister played flute and she ultimately, when she was in college, played with my dad. I don't really know what it was. I don't know if he didn't know how to teach it. I don't know if he was so tied up in his own trying to make it as a musician that he just didn't have time because I I know that was tumultuous for him also. So it's funny, these questions that that, that come up in your family. And a lot of times, not to get too deep into it, but a lot of times it does feel like you realize these questions when it's too late and you can't really say, oh, why didn't we ever do this? Or in a very odd, not really relevant comparison, but I'll say it anyway. I realized very shortly before my dad died, actually, he was probably like 80 at this point and he died at almost 83. So he must've been about 80. And I thought, I really wish, I really would like to teach my dad to swim because I, me and all of my siblings are big swimmers. I'm a triathlete. I swim avidly now. And my dad never knew how to swim. And of course, by the time I thought of it, I lived in another country. The idea of us getting together and ever being even in a swimming pool together, not to mention he would probably never have been on board with that idea. But it came to me and it was like, yeah, it came too late. And there's always questions that you think, I wish I would have thought of that earlier. or Why didn't we ever do that? But I think it really speaks to family dynamics. And it speaks to the fact that in any family, and all families are the same in this way, that there are certain rules or certain ways of doing things that everybody just accepts because it's just part of your family story or whatever, that it, nobody questions it. I remember I read this story once about a woman that when she cooked, I think it was a leg of lamb, she always cut the end off of the leg of lamb when she put it into the pan. And she didn't know why she did it. Her mother had done it. Her grandmother had done it. And it was just what they did. And finally, she asked her grandmother, why do you cut off the end of the leg of lamb before you put it in the pan? And her grandmother said, oh, it's because when I first started doing this, the pan was too small and I had to fit the leg of lamb into the pan. (laughs) So I think about that sometimes. It's like there are these things that we carry on and we don't even question them. It's just, this is normal. This is what we do. So that's how I feel about my dad and classical music versus a jazz and big band and not playing together. So you obviously had a very musical family, though, growing up, whether you played together or not. Yes. Yes. My sister and I definitely did. We definitely played together. And how old were you when you started playing piano? Oh, it was before I was in kindergarten. Long before the poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Long before the poetry. Yeah. No, we had this old upright piano in the back room and I used to just plunk around on it. And so it was just normal that I would take piano lessons. So I took piano lessons even before I could read. I I actually loved, because first I had these John Shaw books and then I had John Thompson books. And what I loved about them was that they all have pictures so that I could make up stories while I played the songs. So that to me, that was like the most important thing. There was the music and practicing and everything. But yeah, I poured through music. I poured through musical theater books. And then when my sister, my sister played the flute, she was 18 months younger than me. But as soon as 
gosh, I think it was even in grade school, she and I started playing flute and piano duets together. So you ended up studying piano in college? Yes, yes, yes. Was that still in Colorado or is that when you started to make a move out east? I went to the University of Denver and I got a scholarship, an accompanying scholarship, because I was good at accompanying people. And so that was really great. Um, So I accompanied singers mostly, but I also accompanied choir and everything. And I played in the percussion ensemble. So that was really fun. So I went to the University of Denver and I studied with a teacher there. And my teacher was from New York. Right. And so I just thought he was the bee's knees. He was sophisticated. He was exotic. He went back and forth to New York. He played concerts there. And he always just talked about New York. And I wanted to go to New York. But I have to tell you a little story, another little story that harkens back, but it talks about New York, which is that when I was a little kid in the waiting room of my pediatrician's office in Pueblo, Colorado, there was a New Yorker magazine. Now, you have to imagine in the 1960s, a New Yorker magazine being on the coffee table in Pueblo, Colorado does not seem likely at all. So I picked it up because there was a little cartoon on the cover and I opened it up and I saw all of these listings of all of these events happening in New York City. And that was very profound for me because I was like, I want to see all these things. I want to go to all these shows. I want to go to all these concerts. And I was like in grade school. Anyway, so this goes back to my college teacher in that I already had this New York thing in my brain, even though I had never been to New York. My my teacher then, he recommended that I audition for graduate school at his alma mater, which is the Manhattan School of Music, Mm -hmm. and that I should study with his teacher. So I did. I came to New York and auditioned. And you've been there ever since. Yes. Yes. And I keep thinking, I've been here a long time, and I keep thinking that at some point I'm going to Get over it. I'm going to get over living in New York, right? I'm going to go back to Colorado or I'm going to go someplace else. And even though I would like to have grass and stuff around me, I feel like I'm a culture addict. Yeah. I can't get enough culture. I can't get enough theater. I can't get enough music and high quality. That's the other part. And then there's always like a new place to perform. There's always a new thing to learn. There's always a new person to meet. So I find New York very stimulating in that way. And so I stay. Yeah. I always talk about moving to London. I know people from smaller cities who have moved here and they're just like, it's so hectic. And I'm so stressed out being in London. Everybody's moving at such a pace. And I'm like, I came here from New York City. Like to me, it was a real, okay, Kristen, just breathe, slow down. Because I was on the New York pace and going from Ohio to New York was a different story because I was very offended a couple of times by just the speed, the brusqueness of what was going on around me. But once I got used to it, I was addicted and I did think I was going to be there pretty much for the rest of my life. So I love being in London, but there is always a little call back to New York that says, oh, maybe someday you'll be back with me. And Because <laughs> I do really love New York. But that kind of surprises me because I would think that New York and London would have a very similar vibe. So what you're saying is that they don't? I would say no. I don't know. And they have the city vibe. When you talk about culture, I feel really lucky because I did not see nearly as much theater in New York as I do here. And people complain because West End prices are looking a lot more like Broadway prices nowadays. But there are still so many places to see 
inexpensive, really high quality, amazing theater here. It, As far as that kind of thing goes, I can't complain at all. It's just, it does feel different. And it's funny because I actually have had plenty of Londoners say, oh, New Yorkers are so nice. Obviously, they don't say it in that voice. But, uh, and I laugh because I'm like, oh, we are famous for being not nice. Like in the States, like if you're a New Yorker, you're considered super rude. But as Americans, and there's still this kind of openness. So when I go back, I realize how chatty New Yorkers are because people aren't chatty here. And there is the pace thing. It's just different. I always feel like New Yorkers might be rude on the outside, but actually they have a heart of gold on the inside. And I think the other thing is, and uh, making a generality, which may or may not be true, but I think it also has to do with a British, I don't want to say standoffishness, but holding back. But I think the Americans, Americans can tend to upset people because they're like, blah, 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 and just <laughs> yapping away. And the couple of times I've been in, in England, everybody is very, a little bit held back. So that kind of makes a little sense to me. Yeah, I would definitely say those stereotypes are pretty true because you can hear people here. I still feel like sometimes I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm American. I'm big and loud. That's just how it is. (laughs) (laughs) And I've probably become a little more reserved since I've been here. But let's be honest, that's never going to happen. So (laughs) no, 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 no. So it's funny because I asked you before we were chatting, Okay, you've been a musician all your life. You're taking this show to the fringe. What's changed? But I think what's really interesting as I'm doing this special group of episodes around women of the fringe is that most of the time there are a few stories of I was this now I'm a performer but there are also these stories of the kind of need or desire depending on your situation but this multi-potentialite multi-hyphen career it's very difficult to say I am just a whatever you might find a great level of success but most of us are in my case actor producer coach etc i know that you piano teacher actor you've done film work tell me about this sort of multi world of yours it's funny that you asked that question because i have actually struggled with that for a long time and i've finally come to terms with it which i'll explain in a second but What started happening to me is that everything was a progression in that I was a classical pianist and then I needed to get a summer job. And so I got a summer job at a kid's theater camp. And so next thing I know, I'm musical directing and I'd never musical directed before. So now I'm like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. And I kind of like it. And I liked working with people. That was the thing. When you're a pianist, you're by yourself all the time practicing. And I discovered that I actually was a very outgoing person and that I really loved that. So I started musical directing. So then as I'm musical directing and doing more and more in that, I'm like, wow, I really want to be up on the stage. They look like they're having so much fun. I loved hanging out in the green room. I loved actors' energy. I just loved the chattiness about them and the funness and all that stuff. I love that. So then I thought, well, I have to start taking acting classes in order to get myself up on stage because I have no idea what that's all about. So then I started taking acting classes. At the same time, I had always sung and I worked as a, a professional choral singer. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that at the same time. I was singing with the New York Philharmonic and the American Symphony Orchestra. And with so I had like piano to choral singing 
uh, to acting. And then suddenly I'm in acting class a whole bunch. And I'm like, wow, I really like this. It like forces you to look inside yourself. Whoa, whoa, I get to find out about myself, which is either a good thing or a bad thing. But it is like what we have to do. And so introspection, that was beautiful. I love that. And then when I was in acting class for a couple of years, I realized that I could stay in acting class forever because I loved it so much, but maybe I should start like auditioning for things and take it beyond just being in class. And so then that brought up a whole other set of skills. Um, and so then I started doing theater and doing film work and that was really great. And then now I have to learn about marketing because everything is about marketing, right? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> yes, we have to learn about marketing. And then there's the computer and all these platforms that we have to learn. Anyway, all of this is leading up to me and my solo show and writing my solo show. About 10 years ago, I would say, I started thinking about the fact that all these things that happened to me when I came to New York from Pueblo and getting into graduate school and the struggle that was and all of the things that happened. And I thought of all these little stories that happened to me. And I thought, oh, I should write those down. And then little by little, I was going to do it as a cabaret. But then I realized that I went to see, started seeing solo shows. And I was like, oh, this is a great platform. So then I, I thought, well, maybe I'll make it into a solo show. And I took a class with Austin Pendleton on solo writing. And that was really great. And But the thing is, I've never thought about myself as a writer. But then as I started to write, I realized that I actually really like to write. So then I have this idea. And then the big kicker for me was going to 59 East 59th Street and seeing Hershey Felder, who's an amazing pianist. And he performs one-man shows that are based on composers, musicians. The first one I saw was Leonard Bernstein. And then there was Irving Berlin. And then a whole bunch of people. And I thought, oh, my God, there is a place in the world for classical music solo shows. And that kind of changed everything for me about how I thought. And I thought, well, I'm not Hershey Felder and I'm not Leonard Bernstein, but I'm Cynthia Shaw and I have a story to tell. And every time I would go see someone's show, I'd be like, wow, that's so interesting. You didn't really know that about that person. There's a there's something. So that's where that came from. So anyway, to get back to your original question, which was being a multi-hyphenate, oftentimes in marketing classes, acting marketing classes, they tell you, you have to be one thing and you right. have to focus on that one thing. What's your five-year goal? What's your whatever year goal, right? What is your goal? And I always struggled with that because I had all of these, all of these things that were pulling me in all these different directions. And now I finally realized that it's okay for me to do all of them. It's okay for me to do all of them because I love them all so much and they all are part of my own creative energy and my own creative adventure and that they all give me energy and life and like what rule said that I can't do them all. So I'm much happier, <laughs> frankly, doing them all than thinking, oh, should I be a musician? Should I be a, an actor? So you look at someone like Ethan Hawke, right? And he is an actor, a writer, a producer. He does art. And Jim Carrey, too. Jim Carrey has like his whole art thing. So I think I can do all of those things because they all feed my creative energy and my creative spirit. And I feel much happier when I'm creating. Yeah, I just feel much happier doing that. 
And you mentioned two men who have done this kind of multi-potentialite, multi-hyphenate, et cetera, in the entertainment business. But I do think it's really interesting as well, because as women over 35 plus, we're seeing this huge sort of push toward, I don't know, a, a very famous example on the level that you're talking about is somebody like Reese Witherspoon, who's reading books, finding that she feels there's a story to be told that she knows might not be told unless her production company says, you know what? I'm going to take that story. And when it suits her or was it's the right role for her, she stars in it. When it's not, she's still getting these stories made that might not be told about women. And I think that is one of the reasons that so many actors do start making their own work or become multi, multi multifaceted is because we all do have a story to tell. And I loved what you said. I might not be Bernstein, but I am Cynthia Shaw. And I have a story. Exactly. I think that, of course, I think Reese Witherspoon is an amazing example of someone who acted. And I can imagine, because I feel this myself, but for someone at her level, that at a certain point when you've done so many projects and so many things, you begin to see how it could be done better or Mm. how there are holes in what is being produced or how this director, I'm not really wild about him or her. I wish I could have hired my own director. All of these things that you start thinking about. And then I'm sure that she went through that too and said, you know what? I'm just going to start my own production company and therefore I can promote whatever I want. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And she's created this whole amazing industry, which is just beautiful. Piggybacks a little bit on Oprah Winfrey and her Oprah book selections. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, Oprah Winfrey says, this is a really good book to read. And all of us, me included, say, wow, you're right. Oprah gave it the stamp of approval. And it's the same thing with Reese Witherspoon. So I think that's really a wonderful thing that is happening. I'm going to pick up on the fact that you're talking about marketing because we are doing a very bad job of it. We have not mentioned the fact that your show is called Velvet Determination because that will help people find it. (laughs) Yes, yes. Velvet Determination, that is my show about the trials and tribulations of being a young classical pianist, trying to go from a small town to a large town and get into graduate school. So That's a fabulous elevator pitch, but I'm going to also do your tagline, which is a musical journey about wrong notes, hard knocks, and the keys to success, which I think is a fabulous line. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I wish I had thought of it myself. But my director, Peter Michael Marino, actually was the one. He and I were brainstorming about taglines and we came up with that one. So that and I was like, oh, my God, that is so my show. Yeah. Get a good music kind of reference in there. The keys with the piano. Exactly. Yeah. So many people ask me, how did you come up with this title, Velvet Determination? What a great lead in. How did you come up with this title? (laughs) I always love these very poetic titles. So I wanted to have a poetic title. But all I could think of was like nuts and bolts titles like Pueblo Girl Makes a Big New York, Pianist <laughs> Struggles with the Keys. Actually, that's not a bad title. But anyway, that's not too bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should do that one. Anyway, so I had all of these. I always thought about New York City as like Emerald City, the goal, the green castle on the hill, sparkling. So Pueblo to Emerald City or something like that. And then for some reason, Velvet, Velvet like the, ti- the title just occurred to me. And the determination part was the big part because in my show, it's all about determination, Mm -hmm. right? It's all about overcoming obstacles and being determined and not letting things knock you down and kick you out of the game, but make you stronger as you move forward. But the velvet part came from 
I've always loved velvet because on one side, it's soft and smooth and pliable and pretty and shiny and it looks different in different colors. But ultimately, velvet is really strong. Mm. It's really strong. It might stretch. It might be flexible, but it is really strong. And that's how I feel about myself. And that's how I feel about uh, my show. And the things that I say in my show is that even though there are all these obstacles that present, presented themselves to me, and I suppose they still do in my life because don't we all have obstacles? But yes. <laughs> that we all, but it's always really overcoming the obstacles with grace and determination and kindness in a sense. So you mentioned how it all came together at this point, but I'm interested in the fact that you're telling this story of much earlier in your life. Why now? I think it's only because... You know, I started reflecting on my first years in New York mm-hmm. and all these stories, funny things that happened to me. And I and I thought, oh, that might be of interest to somebody. It might be of interest to a young person coming to New York and having struggles and for people having to live in a studio apartment or having to travel two hours because you have to live so far out in Brooklyn to get to the city is so far. Like all these things that when you come to a new place to pursue you, your dream you have to overcome. And so that's why I tell the story about then. It's an interesting question that you ask because, I don't know, maybe it's a way for me to hide, in a sense. You can tell the story about your old self, your 20-year-old self, but to tell a story about yourself now might be a little too close. I don't know. I feel like how things are for me now or have been in the past 10 years or something, that feels very normal to me. Or very, like everybody, everybody is going, everybody I know is going through that. So like, there's nothing unique about that. Maybe in 20 years, I'll feel different. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like even the most monumental things that have happened in my life, because they tend to happen on a similar timeline to friends, or I mentioned being a triathlete. So a lot of my biggest triathlon achievements have happened around my triathlete friends. So it's not a big deal. So yeah, when you're living it, it's never quite, you don't see the drama sometimes. It might feel dramatic, but you don't see the drama until you kind of have some retrospect. Retrospect? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. It's funny, actually, when I, when I performed the show, people have said to me, I have no idea how musicians, what they have to do. I have no idea about practicing. I have no idea about finding jobs. I have no idea about all of those things. And I realized that all of us in whatever field we're in, we feel that way about our field. Like, I think doing a show about being an actor would be a really interesting show. And I know there are shows about that, but people don't really understand. Like, what that means, what you have to do, what the day-to-day activities are to be an actor. Yeah, you forget there's a camera right up in somebody's face and they're trying to be really emotional at that moment or having to live out this scene that might be heartbreaking. And then it's like, cut. <laughs> exactly. Cut and let's do it again. That was a good take. And again, let's do it again. And again. again and again and again. Oh, and by the way, Here's a script change. The writer didn't like these lines. So here's your new script, your new scene with new lines that we're shooting in an hour. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It is funny. You don't think about what people do as part of their job, but definitely something like acting, acting or music where you're so forward facing. People feel like they know you or they know your life and whatever, but they never see the behind the scenes. It's the iceberg effect. They don't know for that little... 5% that they see on top, 
They don't know that there's all of this. They don't know when you're working on a play the thousands of hours you spend memorizing the script. Before you right? even walk into a rehearsal room. Ugh. Before you even <laughs> walk into a rehearsal room. Or the fact that if you have a, a big TV audition, not only do you have, and usually you have, what, 24 hours, 48 hours, right? And not to mention the overnight success, quote unquote, so often those people have worked four <laughs> years to become an overnight success. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I started watching actually last night, there's a new entry about Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman. And it's really wonderful talking about where they came from, how they met their beginnings and all of the two of them. And if you think about it, anybody who's famous was nobody at one time. Yeah, absolutely. There were nobody. I don't know. I could get into the constructs of fame and why celebrities are famous instead of teach. I mean, like, it's just, <laughs> that's oh, a whole that's other like podcast. That's like a whole can of worms right there. <laughs> that's my next podcast. Yeah. The whole yeah. concept. Walking away from that one, 3,500 plus shows at the Fringe. What are you excited and what are you nervous about? Oh, my gosh. First of all, even just the fact that you're saying 3,500 fills my heart with, like, letters, right? I'm excited about going. I'm nervous about going. I'm fearful about going. I am overwhelmed about going. So these are the things that rattle around in my head, and they're all not in any particular order. They're just all my fears. My fear is I have to perform my show 21 times. Oh my gosh, will I do a good job? Will I play the piano well? Will I make mistakes, right? So there's fear number one. Fear number two is there's so many wonderful shows. What if I miss a really good one? Mm. What if I miss a really good one, right? You will miss uh, a really good one. You will miss I lots will. of really good ones because you do not have that much time. But exactly. you get to see some really amazing ones too. Exactly. Will I be able to get an audience? I only have a 35-seat house, which I did on purpose. I didn't want to have like a 60-seat house and try to have to fill 60 seats by myself. 35 seats, that means every day... I'm going to be having to promote my show, talk to people, do all of these things to encourage people to come see my show. So there's all of that part of it. Will I be exhausted all the time? My husband's going. Will he get exhausted all the time? All of these things. So those are all my fears. I can say also, yes, but like the best kind of exhaustion, <laughs> I think. Exactly. Exactly. Thank goodness both of us are like New York people are walkers. Yes. Thank goodness, because we'll do a lot of walking. So that's really good. Me though. I don't know if you've been to Edinburgh before. It's been a long time. Yeah. Walking in New York is very flat. <laughs> walking it's in Edinburgh. Edinburgh. <laughs> it's hills, right? Like yeah. up and down. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm going to bring comfy shoes. That's for sure. Definitely. And a raincoat. <laughs> and a ra Please bring a raincoat. Yes, a warm yes. one. So there's all of that. But there's the excitement actually of meeting other people of hearing about their shows. Already, I've started being very active on Twitter, which is actually how I met you, Yes, which is awesome. So I've been trying to be active on Twitter and already like I've met people on Twitter and I'm going back and forth with them. And so I start little by little feeling a sense of community in that way. And there's a group of us from New York, women who are going to Twitter, bringing, uh, going to Twitter, going to Edinburgh, <laughs> bringing our shows. And we've already created a little WhatsApp group for us so that we can connect with each other and we can say, I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm this and this. So you have that kind of community going on. 
So I'm really happy about that because I think it would be really awful to go there and feel like you were all alone. Yeah, I do think that's probably one of the most important things is that you're there for a long time. Make sure you have connections and a support network because I think there are a lot of performers there and there's so many people who want community. So it definitely becomes very quick friendships and support and supporting each other's shows, which I think is one of the additional beautiful things that maybe people that just go as audience members don't get to see the, the kind of another kind of behind the scenes thing, how people are working together to really support each other across the month. Even other festivals I've been to, I went to the Reykjavik Fringe. I performed at the Reykjavik Fringe Festival in June. And one of the beautiful things about it was that I got to meet all these other artists and see their shows. And as you're walking around, you run into them here and there. And so suddenly you're like friends and you, and I love that. And it's happened at every festival I've gone to. And I feel like I start building, you could call it your network, right? It's your network, but that sounds too cold to me. To me, it really is about like people that you, you get to know and you get to understand and you get to have in your world and talk to them and be your friends. I guess that's what I'm saying. Be your friends. And even for me personally, if I meet you and I like you and I connect with you, then even if I don't see you for another 10 years, you are still my friend. Yeah. Always feel that connection to you. And I love that. I really love that. So that's how I feel about connecting to other people at any fringe. And Edinburgh is going to be even more of that because there's just more people to talk to and to connect with, to be friendly with. Definitely. It, it is such a, I just, I keep going on about it. Oh, it's so fun, but I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Obviously. I always ask for a quote. Did you bring a quote for me today? I don't have it in front of me, but I do remember it. So it's something like one cannot reach new shores without, reach new places or new heights without leaving the shore in the first place. And I love that quote because it just reminds me that going out on a limb, taking chances, trying something you've never done before always leads you someplace magical and mysterious, right? Or new and wonderful. You take a chance and some choices aren't the best choices, but you don't go anywhere. You don't grow and you don't move forward unless you take chances and leave the shore. So that one's to me very powerfully for that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that one. It's not every choice and not every chance is going to lead to something good, but there's going to be, I think, obviously we're talking about Edinburgh Fringe. Financially, it's difficult. You take time out of your life. There is the exhaustion and the stress and whatever. But even if you don't, of course, a lot of people go there. Is this a big break? Is this new audiences? Yes, and maybe yes. But more than anything, you know you're going to learn something. And you know you're probably going to end up with, like you said, a group of friends at the end, people that you would have never met otherwise. So it's always worth leaving the shore, I think. Yes, absolutely. And oftentimes I think, wow, if I hadn't talked to this person, then this thing wouldn't have happened. If I hadn't walked out this door on this day, then this thing wouldn't have happened. If I hadn't decided to become more active on Twitter, I wouldn't have met you. Exactly. So to me, even if you go a little bit outside of your comfort zone, like a little bit, you know, you just never know. And when we stay in our comfort zones and we get stuck. So going to Edinburgh, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I want to be open for whatever it is. 
and whatever happens. And if nothing happens, it's okay because I'll have a great experience and I'll meet great people. When are you leaving your literal shore to fly over? <laughs> so we fly out on August 1st from JFK and we go to Heathrow, which I'm a little freaked out about because Heathrow is having a little problems right now. But yes. we go to Heathrow and then from Heathrow, we fly to Edinburgh and we, are, we get there at 1.15 on August 2nd. And then when does the show start? August 5th. Okay, so the you first few days to settle in. Yeah. So I have my tech on August 3rd and then August 4th and then August 5th at 1730, as you all say. So 1730 at Greenside Venue Nicholson Burn Studio. And it's Velvet Determination. Velvet Determination. Yes. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your Velvet Determination with me today and Thank a bit you. about your story. I hope you have such a great fringe. Oh, I definitely will. And I look forward to meeting you in person there. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you, Cynthia. You're quite welcome, Kristen. It's been a joy. So thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told, and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.